welcome to the History of Grom. Episode 1. Hunting and preferably gathering. Grob is an enigma. The only nation never to discover the wheel, even after it was shown to them by outsiders and patiently explained. The only nation in World War II to declare war on the Swiss and no one else. The only nation in history to decide that they didn't like their industrial revolution and revolve back in the other direction. Grob. Land of contradictions. Land of no contradictions. In this podcast, I intend to explore the remarkable history of this unique and fascinating nation. The story of what would one day become the Kingdom of Grob, then the Glorious People's Republic of Grob, then the Kingdom of Grob again, before finally settling on the Glorious King's Republic of Grob, starts with a few scattered tribes, living a hands-to-mouth existence on the fertile grasslands of what we now call the Grobian Veldt. There is conflicting archaeological evidence as to where exactly this was, even down to the continent on which it was located, but the artefacts that have been unearthed paint a picture of a lifestyle which was at once brutal and extremely tedious. As well as the usual crude bronze weapons, and even cruder cave graffiti, the most evocative artefact from this period is undoubtedly the hand-carved toy discovered by the 19th century archaeologist Sir Hugo Printon Bluff. From his diaries, which are preserved in the archives of the British Library, we have a first-hand account of the find. Day 14. We exhumed a most unusual item from trench number 2. The object appears to be a rudimentary version of the cup and ball toy still in common use amongst children today. The main element of the thing is a small wooden bowl with a handle protruding from the underside. At the base of this handle is tied a length of cured animal gut, the cord is tied at the other end to what looks to be a pig's knuckle bone, smoothed down to an uneven ball. The intention, it would seem, is to swing the ball up and attempt to catch it in the cup, all with the use of only one hand. A simple but remarkable invention, considering the era from which it derives. Day 15. I have just spent the better part of two hours attempting to catch the ball in the cup. It is, evidently, more difficult than it first appears. I can easily lift the ball with my free hand and place it in the correct position, but this begins to feel like something of an empty victory after a few repetitions. Day 16. Much of the day's digging has been lost, as myself and various members of my team attempt to catch the ball in the cup. Young Cedric came very close to a successful catch, but after initially seeming secured, the ball toppled out at the last moment. One of the local workers claimed to have managed the successful catch when nobody else was looking, but has been unable to replicate the achievement under scrutiny. I am dubious. Day 17. The damn ball is too small for the bloody cup. I am sure of it. Every time I think I have it, the blasted thing topples out and I'm back where I started. Several of the local workers have walked off the dig, frustrated at the lack of progress. Perhaps also jealous that I'm getting more turns with the cup and ball than they are. Day 18. I have thrown the damned thing into the river in a state of exasperation. May it rot in the mud down there and never be found again. Cedric mentioned that it might have been considered a valuable find and a possible candidate for the British Museum Antiquities collection, but he has been working on his wrist action and probably just wants another go. No, we are better off without it. It is at times like this that I curse my father's insistence that I pursue archaeology, when all I ever wanted to be was a dancer. 
As we can tell from Sir Hugo's account, life on the Grobian Veldt was most likely very tough. It was in this environment that the Proto-Grobian tribes developed the skills, technology and social structures that would later allow them to kick seven shades of civilization out of one another before finally uniting to form what would become the Kingdom of Grob. At this time, the tribes would have been largely dependent on the local wildlife for sustenance. If they wanted enough food to survive, and all historical evidence suggests that they did, they would have to hunt for it, making effective use of all their cunning, ingenuity and pointy bits of wood. A typical tribal hunting party might contain between three and ten hunters equipped with spears, two or more young boys whose job it was to drag away felled animals, and at least one druid with some leaves on his head for religious reasons. The hunting party might also have included a spear carrier, a documentary songwriter, and a small rhythm section. We have literally no way of knowing. What we do know, however, is that this hunter-gatherer lifestyle quickly adapted to the needs of the population. First one tribe, then another, decided that they should focus on gathering rather than hunting. The reasons for this appear to be threefold. Gathering was easier, safer, and, most importantly, easier. The first tribe to reach this conclusion immediately stopped sending out hunting parties. Instead, they headed over to the territory of the next tribe along, waited until they were asleep, and gathered all their food. When this second tribe woke up and realised their food was gone, they set out to gather it back. Unfortunately, they went in the wrong direction, and ended up gathering food from a third tribe who had previously been minding their own business. This pattern of mistaken identity and retribution eventually led to what modern historians refer to as the Battle of the Lumpy Bit of Rock Near the River. The Lumpy Bit of Rock Near the River was of vital strategic importance, inasmuch as anything can be of vital strategic importance to people who still wipe themselves with leaves after going to the toilet. It was located at a point where the ancestral territory of several tribes overlapped, and the land around it was a fertile valley of lush grass. This was of little relevance to the nomadic tribes of the Grobian Veldt, who were, as previously outlined, idiots. For later generations, though, the land surrounding the lumpy bit of rock would provide the ideal starting point for an agrarian lifestyle, and, eventually, the site of the region's first city. The Battle of the Lumpy Bit of Rock near the river is a key moment in the founding myth of the nation of Grob. Despite this, very little is known about the precise events of the battle itself. What we do know is that one tribe charged down the hillside at another, throwing spears and rocks and, in all probability, foul language. The defending tribe were trapped, with their backs to the lumpy bit of rock, and despite a valiant defence they were slaughtered pretty much instantaneously. Just as the attacking tribe were celebrating their victory, though, another tribe came thundering down the hillside, catching the first tribe completely unawares, in the same position the now-defeated tribe had been in before. A discussion about whether this constituted irony was cut short by the second inevitable massacre of the day. The fourth tribe to arrive in the valley started their charge down the hillside a little early, meaning that the first row of their warriors caught up with the last row of the previous tribe, and, rather than attacking them, joined in with their massacre of the unfortunate tribe at the bottom. By the time the fifth tribe came clattering into the battle, pretty much everyone had forgotten who was who, and each warrior was just having a pop at whoever was closest at any given moment. The sixth tribe to arrive started to charge down the hillside, but seeing the chaos in the valley below quickly went off the idea. Before they could retreat, however, a seventh tribe had piled in behind them, and they were swept down to the battle with everybody else. Over the next few hours, several more tribes arrived. 
some hoping to stake a claim to whatever it was that the others were fighting over, some to complain about the noise. All were caught up in the mass brawl until literally no one knew what was going on. It is possible that at this point a barrel-chested warrior with locks of hair cascading like a dark waterfall down his muscular back fought his way out of the throng to stand atop the lumpy bit of rock and bellow in a loud clear voice that silenced all around him, My brothers, much blood has been spilled here today. Let us not add to its flow. Rather, let us lay down our arms and embrace one another as the family we truly are. Did we not tame this land together? Are we not a brotherhood of noble intent? Why then do we fight? No more blood, I say, no more! As far as we know, he may then have raised his spear above his head and broken it in two with his bare hands, the splintering crack ringing out like a thunderclap across the valley as the people of the gathered tribe stared in hushed awe at the man who had become their first and greatest chieftain. But this is all speculation. All we've actually got to go on are a few old bones in a riverbed. But, you know, that's history for you. In the next episode, we'll look at the foundation of the first settlement of Grob, as well as talking about the unique and remarkable linguistic features of the early Grobian language. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Grob. If you enjoyed it, you might want to buy my book, 100 Ways to Write Badly Well. It's a guide to the art of terrible writing. You can get it from nastylittlepress.org or get the ebook from anywhere you normally get ebooks from.